Morning, Grace. Mark chapter 3. I love that story out of John's gospel where Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to tell you a, a beautiful story about what grace looks like, which is very uh, similar to that story in John's gospel. In his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party, Tony Campolo relates an experience he had one late night in Hawaii when he was there speaking at a conference. Now, please understand, I am not condoning and approving of Tony Campolo's theology or his beliefs, but this is a good story, and I have to share it with you. It's a story and a picture of how the church should be. It's a picture of God's grace, his unmerited favor that we could never earn and that we don't deserve. And it's a picture of his grace that we should give to others. So because of the time difference in Hawaii, Tony Campolo found himself wide awake in the middle of the night, so he went looking for some place to get a bite to eat. He says this, up a side street, I found a little place that was still open. I went in, took a seat on one of the stools at the counter and waited to be served. This was one of those sleazy places that deserves the name Greasy Spoon. I did not even touch the menu. I was afraid that if I opened the thing, something gruesome would crawl out. But it was the only place I could find. The fat guy behind the counter came over and asked me, What do you want? I said I wanted a cup of coffee and a donut. He poured a cup of coffee, wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron, and then he grabbed the donut off the shelf behind him. I'm a realist. I know that in the back room of that restaurant, donuts are probably dropped on the floor and kicked around. But when everything is out front where I could see it, I really would have appreciated it if he had used a pair of tongs and placed the donut on some wax paper. I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, And the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman beside me say, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me? A birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? Tony then says, When I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the woman had left. Then I called over the fat guy behind the counter and I asked him, Do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come in here every night? Yeah, he said. That's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why'd you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday, I told him. What do you say you and I do something about that? What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? A cute smile slowly crossed his chubby cheeks and he answered with measured delight. That's great. I like it. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife, 
who did the cooking in the back room, he shouted, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants us to go in with him and throw a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night. His wife came out of the back room all bright and smiling. She said, that's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people who is really nice and kind, and nobody does anything nice and kind for her. Look, I told them, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning about 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry. That was his name. The birthday cake's my thing. I'll make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store, and I made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cookie must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. (laughs) It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. After all, I was kind of the MC of the affair. And when they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and he told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake. Then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, is it okay If I kind of, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I, she asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the the cake home, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly toward the door. As we all just stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, What do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Hallelujah at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. 
Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? Well, that's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. I love that story. It's a picture of the gospel. What God in Christ does for us. We're so unworthy and so unlovable. And yet that's what God does for us. It's a story of grace. People are drawn to grace. That's the kind of church that we want to be. That we take our first name seriously. We want people in our city to be drawn here to grace because they are drawn to grace. Hurting people are drawn to grace. Hurting people are drawn to compassion. Bruised reeds and smoldering wicks are drawn to gentleness. As Jack Miller said, gentleness wakes up people trapped in the snares of the devil. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing and exactly what he will send the disciples out to do in the passage that we're looking at today. He will send the disciples out with the power of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom of God, with the power of grace to wake people up who have been trapped in the snares of the devil. And how this applies to us is that we want to create a culture of grace here at Grace. And I think we do this well. We're not perfect but we want to maintain it. And of course, there are always areas where we can all grow, where we need more of God's grace. So how do we create and maintain a culture of grace here at Grace? And here's what it takes to do that. It takes gospel plus safety plus time. Ray Ortland said, this is what our churches must be. Gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we're finally free to grow. That's what we're aiming for here. And I think that's the gentle environment that Jesus created with his disciples and the crowds who were following him. People heard good news from Jesus. They felt safe to come with their sins, with their shortcomings, and with all of their mess. And they knew that there was no rush to get their act together. No pressure. Not even some kind of self-imposed pressure or deadlines on spiritual growth. Is there urgency? Yes. Do we hate sin? Yes. Do we fight sin? Yes, of course. Because we can seriously mess our lives up. Is there some sense of urgency? Yes, but not hurry. Because no one changes quickly, right? Who changes quickly? What couple leaves the pastor's office after one session of marriage counseling and their marriage is healed and perfect? Who changes quickly? Who here still struggles with those same lurking sins that you've always struggled with? Me? And I assume you too. It's all of us. And that's why people were flocking to Jesus. Because he created a gentle environment of grace. So look at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. 
And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowds gathered again, so that they could not even eat. So Jesus appoints these 12 men to go throughout the villages, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, casting out demons, and healing the sick. And the exorcisms that they would perform were a part of what Jesus calls binding the strong man that we'll look at next week in the other part of this section. What we'll see next week is that this is all actually a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42 when he said that the Messiah would care for bruised reeds and flickering wicks. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So Jesus is sending these men out to preach the good news of the kingdom and with gentleness to wake up people who have been ensnared by the devil. In Matthew's account, Jesus tells the disciples that he is sending them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The disciples are being sent out to find lost sheep, lost people, to find prostitutes inside a greasy spoon at three in the morning. That's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. But notice that Mark tells us that Jesus called, he appointed, he named, he sent, he gave authority, and he appointed. Jesus is doing all of the action here. All of these verbs reveal who is in charge. They reveal that Jesus is king and he directs all aspects of his kingdom. He's directing and creating this culture, this gentle environment of grace. He calls whom he calls. He appoints whom he appoints. He is the one who sends them out to preach the good news of the kingdom and to cast out demons. The disciples will do ministry like Jesus because ministry is all about Jesus, not them. This is Jesus' kingdom. They are preaching the good news of his kingdom. But notice that it wasn't just to kingdom ministry. It wasn't just to find lost sheep that Jesus had called these 12 men. Mark tells us in verse 14 that Jesus called them that they might be with him. What beautiful words. Don't rush past these words. Slow down and think about this. Be awestruck by this. Jesus calls people. He calls sinners to himself. Jesus wants to be with his people. Jesus cannot get close enough to his people. We, many times, are less excited about prayer, less excited about Bible study, less excited about church, but Jesus is always ready and willing. He simply cannot get close enough to his people. One commentator said this, The simple prepositional phrase, to be with him, has atomic significance in the Gospel of Mark. 
Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. A who before a what. If, as Genesis 3 verses 4 and 5 indicates, the essence of sin is substituting a false God for the true God, being with Jesus becomes the way of forsaking human idols and honoring the true God, thus recovering the image of God. To be with Jesus is the most profound mystery of discipleship. Jesus cannot get close enough to his people. He actually wants to be with us. That's crazy. That has atomic significance. Don't just fly past these words of Mark that they might be with him. Be astounded by that. Before the disciples are sent out in ministry, they're called to be with Jesus in order to be gentle as we minister, in order to find lost sheep, we have to be with the good shepherd. Otherwise, we'll go out with law and minister in a way that we just tell everybody, get your act together. Come on. If we're with Jesus, if we're with the good shepherd, we'll go out and we'll be gentle with bruised reeds and flickering wicks. We have to be with Jesus. Yesterday I was sitting in this chair of mine. It's my chair. And it's this old 60 chairs with this really high back. It kind of looks like a throne, so I kind of think of it as my throne because I'm the king and I'm the king of my kingdom and I sit in it. And I was sitting in it yesterday and Piper came up to me and she said, can I just sit in your lap? Absolutely. That's what God wants of his children. Can I just sit in your lap and just be with you? No pretense, not here to check off a list, not trying to earn your favor or anything. I just want to be with you. That's where peace is. That's where hope is. That's what Jesus called the 12 disciples to before he sent them out. They needed to be with Jesus if they were going to preach and if they were going to cast out any demons. They certainly couldn't do any of that in their own strength. Listen, Mark is challenging us here. It seems like a simple verse that Jesus called 12 disciples and sent them out in ministry. But it's not just a simple verse. Mark is actually challenging us here. What Mark is doing is challenging our natural bent to try and do life without Jesus. And that's us all the time, isn't it? We try to do life without him. Mark is telling us that we need to be weaned off of trust in ourselves, weaned off of trust in our cleverness. Listen, cleverness does not cast out demons. Only being with Jesus does. Having swagger will not help you in the trenches of ministry. Having swagger will not enable you to cast demons out of people. Demons don't respond to swagger. Being hip and cool will not help you. Only being with Jesus will. Swagger has no place in the kingdom of God. Swagger and the kingdom of God can't coexist. The spirit does not work and move through swagger. The spirit works and moves through humility, through gentleness, through kindness. Being hip and cool is not a prerequisite for ministry, faithfulness, and success. It's actually a hindrance. Jesus didn't pick his disciples from the cool kids' table. 
The guys that Jesus picked were misfits. They were a mess. Peter was an uneducated fisherman, and Jesus called him, Mark tells us, and gave him a new nickname, The Rock. And you know from reading scripture that Peter was less of a rock, less of a rock-solid character, wasn't he? In fact, Peter was a character. He was rough around the edges. He was messy. He had issues. And Jesus knew this when he called him. And that should encourage you because some of y'all have some issues. Who am I kidding? I have issues. We all have issues, right? And that's why I like Peter. And then you have James and John. Mark tells us that Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. The name that Jesus gives them, Boanerges in Hebrews, suggests the loud ones or perhaps the hot-tempered pair. So it's like the WWE already. Jesus is three guys into picking his team, and it already feels like professional wrestling, doesn't it? You have a guy named The Rock, and then you have the tag team champions, the Sons of Thunder. Three guys into his picks, and Jesus has a team that consists of one guy who is always so quick to speak his mind. He'll cut a guy's ear off later on in the Gospels. He'll tell Jesus to shut up when Jesus talks about dying on the cross. A guy who basically lives by the motto, open mouth, insert foot. That's Peter. And then you have two brothers who Jesus nicknames the loud, obnoxious hotheads. And that's just the first three guys that Jesus picks. Listen, you cannot put Jesus into a box. He does what he wants to do according to his own wisdom because he's the king. And Jesus will send the rock and the sons of thunder out in ministry to gently Wake people up from the snares of the devil. The rock and the sons of thunder will gently minister to lost sheep. And then you have Matthew, who we saw back in chapter 2, who was also named Levi. Matthew was a turncoat trader who was taxing Israel and working for the despised Roman government. And then you have Simon the Zealot, who was a political zealot who wanted to overthrow the Roman government and take it by force. Simon was the guy that said, we can do this. There's 12 of us in Jesus, we can overthrow Rome. Now, imagine how the conversations between Levi and Simon were. You have a guy who is a Jew who works for the IRS with Rome and he's taxing the guts out of his fellow Jews and he's sitting next to a guy who is so pro-Israel that he wants to get all of his Fox News watching NRA friends together and lead a coup against Rome. I bet Levi and Simon had some fun conversations around the campfire. And yet Jesus chose these guys, this eclectic group of guys, to be a part of his inner circle. Jesus picked misfits, and then he sent them out in ministry to gently find lost sheep. How do all these very different people come together? What kind of environment does it take for this kind of diversity to result in unity? Here's what it takes. It takes gospel plus safety plus time. A lot of gospel, a lot of safety, and a lot of time. That's how it works. Understand this. Jesus is 
very comfortable bringing together very diverse people to join him on mission. We feel uncomfortable being around people we don't like or people who are different from us. Not Jesus. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Anne Ortland, who's the wife of the late pastor uh, Ray Ortland Sr., Ray Ortland is their son, Anne Ortland said this, Every congregation has a choice to be one of two things. You can choose to be a bag of marbles clanging up against each other, hard, not really connecting to each other except in collision. On Sunday morning, you can choose to go to church or to sleep in. Who really cares whether there are 192 or 193 marbles in a bag? Or you can choose to be a bag of grapes mushed together. The juices begin to mingle, and there's no way to extricate yourselves even if you tried. Our lives blend together in love, and in Christ we produce a sweetness that ministers to others. Each is a part of all. But so many people go to church today and stay unknown and lonely, sitting in their place in their pew, giving their offerings, maybe even serving in some way in the church, but not really connected to the people of God. When we get our eyes off of Jesus, off of the gospel, we start clanging like marbles in a bag. We start placing our preferences above the unity of the gospel. When we do that, it's marble clanging time. So let's get honest with ourselves here. What kind of church are we? What kind of church member are you? Are you a marble or a grape? Do we collide and clang together with one another like marbles or are we like squished together grapes? Let's be a grape kind of church. Mushy, squishy, juicy grape church. Grape Baptist Church. <laughs> we could change our name to that. All we have to do is switch one letter on the building. Grape Baptist Church. Think about that. That would get people asking about us, wouldn't it? People would start asking questions. Why did y'all change your name to Grace? I mean, to Grape Baptist Church. Oh, because we love each other so much. Sure, we're very different, but we come together, united around Jesus, around the gospel, around his mission, and somehow it works. It's crazy, really. We have a guy here who is this Fox News, NRA, gun-loving Trump supporter, and we have this lady here who is this liberal, progressive, Democrat type, and you should see how they love one another. They put all that stuff aside, and they have linked arms to see our city come to know Jesus. That's what we want here. If we are to become a church of squished together grapes and not hard marbles clanging into each other, it's going to take God's grace, his transforming grace. People are hard to love, right? Let's admit that. There are people here who are hard to love, and you are one of them for somebody else, right? We tend to think, yeah, people here are hard to love. I can name 10 right now. Not knowing there's another guy in the room thinking, you're the guy that's hard for me to love. <laughs> there's grace for this kind of church environment. Only by God's grace can we do it. There's grace here for anyone who needs it. 
There's grace for Fox News, NRA, gun-loving Trump supporters to link arms with liberal, progressive Democrat types. All we got to do is ask. All we got to do is humble ourselves. All we got to do is be with Jesus. We want the good news of Jesus to get down into the nooks and crannies of our hearts so that we throw birthday parties for prostitutes inside a greasy spoon at three in the morning. And we tell them to go and sin no more like Jesus did with the woman in John 8. That's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. To tell people, you were so loved by Jesus. Now go and sin no more and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Gospel plus safety plus time. The problem that many churches experience is that they have right doctrine. But that doctrine has not shaped the culture of the church. You can have right theology, but have a church culture that actually denies what you believe. The doctrine of a church can be right. The culture and the environment of that church can deny that doctrine. Think about that. The doctrine of a church can be right, but the culture of that church can deny that doctrine. It can talk about grace, but lack grace. And so relationships, our relationships with one another, are the true tests for what we believe, not merely our statement of faith. Our relationships are the true test for what we believe. You have to have both gospel on paper and then gospel in partnership with one another. Gospel beliefs and gospel community. You have to have both. When the gospel, which is good news for bad people, when the gospel, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners like us, when the gospel, when it's the main focus of a church, it creates a gospel culture that the church really needs. It creates this environment of freedom. When the gospel is the main thing of all of our ministries, it helps create this kind of culture where Jesus is worshipped and adored, where sins are confessed, where relationships are reconciled, where money is no longer king, where the races come together in unity, and where laughter and dancing is normal. That's what the gospel does. Because the gospel, as Paul says, is the power of God. Power for salvation, power for transformation, power for resurrection, power for glorification. So what do we need to get there, to stay there? What do we need here? It's gospel plus safety plus time. In this kind of gospel environment, people feel free and they feel safe enough to admit their real problems, to confess their sins, their struggles. They don't feel pressured by other people to grow at some predetermined pace because the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit is trusted. They're banking on the Spirit of God to do what He does best in an individual's life. And then openness is normal. And Forgiveness is normal in this environment. 
And I hope you feel that here at Grace. I hope you have, you have experienced the gentle environment of grace that Jesus was known for. I hope you have experienced Jesus here at Grace. That's what I want. People to come and say, I met Jesus there today. No, he wasn't there physically in bodily form, but I encountered the Son of God today. And I looked into his merciful eyes and I felt that he did not condemn me. I hope you feel that here at Grace. And one thing that we want to begin doing here is highlighting the grace that you and I have experienced here at Grace. And here's what we're going to do. We have a table set out in the hallway, maybe you saw it coming in, with a bunch of uh, post-it notes on these tables, and we want you to take them and write on one or two of them how you have seen evidence of God's grace to you here at Grace. And we want you to write it down and then stick it on the wall, whatever it is. Where have you seen evidence of God's grace here? How have you been ministered to? And what do you like about this church? I ask people that question sometimes. What do you like about your church? And they're like, that's a great question. I never thought of it. You never thought of that? What do you like about your church? What do you like about grace? That's what we want to see. We want to encourage ourselves because sometimes the environment of a church is kind of like maybe an iceberg where you see just a little tip and the tip is just all negativity. And that's all negative things and complaints and all drama that just kind of rises to the surface. And sometimes that's all we see. And yet underneath like an iceberg, there's just this depth and this denseness to God's grace and what he's doing in and through his people at his church. And sometimes we don't see that. So what we want to do start highlighting that we want to encourage ourselves by hearing how God's working we want to give glory to God for all the ways that he has lavished his grace and his goodness on us individually and as a church so there's three questions where have you seen evidence of God's grace here how have you been ministered to and then what do you like what do you love about this church I hope you've been ministered to here I hope you've seen and experienced God's grace I hope you feel it here at Grace. I hope that you, I I pray that you don't feel condemned when you walk in here. I hope you feel safe. I hope you feel this is a safe place for you to admit your weaknesses, to admit your struggles, to admit your sins, because that's what we want. We value safety here. This is a safe place to admit that you don't have your act together. That doesn't mean you come and say, hey, I robbed a bank last week. We're going to say, brother, I'm calling the authorities. And God's transforming grace is going to work in your life as you sit in jail. So I don't mean it's a safe place where you come and say, I embezzled my company of millions of dollars. This is a safe place, not that kind of safe place. A safe place, though, where you could come and just unload. Say, I struggle. I'm struggling in my parenting. And what parent isn't? Really, parents? Every parent here is struggling Every parent here has had murderous thoughts. (laughs) Right? Who doesn't struggle? I lost my plates in my notes. Where am I at here? We value safety here. Not so you can confess to a crime and get away with it. We're not saying that at all. But a safe place that you can admit that you don't have your act together. A safe place to admit that you have issues. 
And who doesn't? We value safety here and we value time. It takes time for people to be changed. It takes time for people to be transformed. No one changes overnight. We will all be changing until we see Jesus face to face. That's the culture that we're shooting for here at Grace. Lots and lots and lots of gospel. The good news that God loves and forgives sinners. And lots and lots of safety and security. Knowing that you're not alone and knowing that you will not be judged. And then lots and lots and lots of time and patience on everyone's part. Where we're not out to fix you so quickly. Who wouldn't thrive in such an environment? Who wouldn't grow spiritually in that kind of environment? That's certainly the environment that you sense that Jesus created. What in the world do you think kept Peter from clashing with the sons of thunder? What kept Peter Big Mouth from clashing with the hothead twins? What in the world do you think kept Simon the Zealot from sticking a dagger to the throat of Levi? Simon wanted to drain the swamp and make Israel great again, and Levi was all about big government. What kept them from killing each other? It was this gospel culture that the presence of Jesus created, and that's why the crowds are gathering outside of his house. Look look at verse 20 quickly. And then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. He couldn't even eat his dinner because there were so many people that wanted to be around him. And why did they want to be around him? Because he created a gentle environment of grace. And we can experience that here when we keep the gospel front and center. We can experience the gentle presence of Jesus when we keep him at the forefront of everything. When we talk about Jesus all the time, how he's gentle and kind and merciful and forgiving and good and loving. That means then that we need multiple exposures to the gospel. I just read it in 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Peter says, I pray mercy, I mean grace and peace be multiplied to you. They've already experienced God's grace and peace in their lives. And he's saying, I want it to be multiplied in your life. Multiple exposures to the gospel. Week after week. We need the Spirit rubbing the finished work of Jesus into our pores. No condemnation. No shaming. No finger pointing. No embarrassment. No manipulation. No trying to fix one another. Instead, respect and sympathy and care and concern. Understanding and compassion where we're free to unload our burdens on one another and not have people roll their eyes or tell us to get our act together. A church where we have nothing to fear. No pressure, just a lot of safety and time. Imagine that. Who wouldn't grow and thrive in this kind of environment? We want to be the kind of church that would throw a birthday party for a prostitute in a greasy spoon at three in the morning. So look around. What a unique church we are. We're very multicultural. I love that about grace. We're very different. And yes, that could cause problems. Maybe you're here and there is a Simon the Zealot to your Levi. And it's hard. 
Jesus has called both of you to himself. And even though it may be difficult, you can love. You can join him on his mission and set aside your differences. What does it take to create a culture of grace? How do we create gentle environments of grace like Jesus? It takes Jesus. It takes humility. It takes gospel plus safety plus time. Multiple exposures to the gospel. My prayer is that you experience that kind of gentle environment here at Grace and you give Jesus all the glory. Do you see him this morning as gentle and kind and merciful? Charles Spurgeon said, who can resist his charms? One look of his eyes overpowers us. See with your heart those eyes when they are full of tears for perishing sinners and you are a willing subject. We own him Lord because we see how he loved. See with your heart this morning the gentle, merciful, kind Savior of sinners. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are gentle with bruised reeds and flickering wicks. And you are merciful. You don't give us what we deserve. In fact, you give us what we don't deserve, which is your righteousness. I pray that you would continue to create this environment here at this, your church, and that your kingdom would extend and go forth from this place through us and all of our areas of influence that you have us, Father. That we would tell people about you and how good you are to us. Help us in Jesus' name.